Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and this is our annual end-of-year episode, 2022, a year in review. In this episode, I'll be attempting a coast-to-coast review of major incidents and changes in emergency management this year, including our epic disaster highlight reel, as well as what we think 2023 might have in store. I also have the pleasure of interviewing Epic correspondents Simon Wells and our very own Jillian Wong on their take on the big disaster stories in Ontario and BC, respectively. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Well, 2022 was an eventful year, both internationally and within Canada, which is what I'll be focusing on. Uh, And there was so much that happened, in fact, that I didn't really know where to begin with this episode. So we're trying something a bit new this year. I'll start off with my top national emergency management news picks, and then we'll go through the provinces and territories in no particular order for a brief overview of what happened and a focus particularly on what changed this year, because there was quite a lot, including some new additions to the top 10 costliest disasters in Canadian history. So here we go. In national news, I think the biggest emergency management story of the year has to be the declaration of and subsequent inquiry into the Emergencies Act. As a quick reminder, the Emergencies Act, which is a very powerful piece of federal EM legislation, was used to grant extraordinary powers to government from February 14th to 23rd in response to the Freedom Convoy protests and blockades in places like Ottawa, Windsor, Coots, Emerson, and the Pacific Highway border crossing. Uh, This was a Canadian first, as the Act had never been used before, and a very controversial move. Uh, If you'd like to find out more about the Act itself, we've actually done two episodes on it with Professor Jack Lindsay, but we have yet to cover what the inquiry unearthed. So, written into the Act itself as a bit of a checks and balances mechanism is the requirement to conduct a formal inquiry into its use, which is due 360 days from when it was used. Uh, And that's exactly what's been happening. Uh, On April 25th, Justice Paul Rouleau was appointed Commissioner of the Public Order Emergency Commission with the mandate to examine and assess the basis for government's decision to declare a public order emergency, the circumstances that led to the the declaration, and the appropriateness and effectiveness of the measures selected by the government to deal with the then existing situation. Uh, As a footnote, the commission will also conduct a policy review of the legislative and regulatory framework involved, including whether any amendments to the Emergencies Act might be necessary. So a huge scope, and that's only the short version. Uh, If you read the order in council, the commissioner was also directed to review the evolution and goals of the convoy, foreign and domestic funding mechanisms, this impossible task of assessing the impact of misinformation and disinformation on social media, the impacts of the blockades, and the efforts of response agencies such as police. So a very far-reaching inquiry. Uh, And since it began, the commission has conducted a constant flow of interviews and public engagement activities, much of which seem to be focused on the definition of an emergency worth uh, invoking the act for, um, initial police actions, and whether or not all appropriate actions were taken before invoking these special powers. This is a huge story, of course, not just because it's a historical first and not just because it's so divisive, but because the legislative impacts could be extremely far-reaching. 
On November 28th, 2022, the Commission began its policy phase of the review, and already there are proposed changes to legislation regarding crowdfunding, cryptocurrency, freedom of expression, and peaceful assembly, uh, and how Canada manages interjurisdictional emergencies. So clearly, there is more to talk about here, and we hope to do a deep dive into this in a future In Case You Haven't Read It episode, so stay tuned for that one. Another top pick for me for National Disaster News was the July 8th Rogers communication outage. As a reminder, 25% of Canada lost coverage for at least 19 hours, and more than 12 million customers couldn't make phone calls or use the internet. In addition, businesses that relied on Rogers or its subsidiaries ground to a halt, and debit interact transactions ceased to exist altogether. Furthermore, uh, this had some serious impacts on public safety. So, for example, potential alerts were not able to be sent, 911 calls were not able to be made, which resulted in at least one death, and critical infrastructure such as hospitals experienced serious communication issues, which impacted things like appointments and scheduling. So beyond the obvious direct impacts, there are also some lessons to be learned in terms of crisis communication here. So by all accounts, the crisis comms response from Rogers was lacking. Uh, Initially, Rogers simply didn't release any statements at all. Uh, And when it did, it was over Twitter, which, of course, its customers couldn't access. Uh, Then it gave some less than truthful updates saying that services were restored to virtually everyone when that wasn't true. And finally, it backed down on its promise to properly compensate customers for the outage, providing just a very basic service refund for one day when the service was down. So, you know, zero out of 10 for crisis comms. But on top of that, the CRTC had to order Rogers to provide an explanation and was even considering a public inquiry into the incident. So overall, this was a major disaster, both in terms of critical infrastructure failure and in terms of corporate and regulator response. And some of the things I think you might be able to expect coming out of this include steps to ensure that phones can always contact 911 through things like agreements between different providers, as well as a separation of internet and cellular infrastructure to ensure redundancy instead of dependence. Uh, And then finally, I would expect a bit of a review of how CRTC regulates these providers, as it's pretty clear that cell phones and internet are no longer just a convenience, but an essential service, Uh, so a more proactive approach might be required. Finally, my third pick for national news has to do with the military's response to to domestic disaster. And I think it's something that will impact disaster response across Canada and leave a bit of a gap. So whether it's using military equipment and personnel to spot fires, access frozen communities, provide additional medical support, or even just fill sandbags or shovel snow, it's fair to say that the Canadian Air Forces have been called out more and more frequently over the last few years. In fact, in an address to the House of Commons this year, Major General Paul Provost uh, stated that requests for military support have doubled every five years since 2010. So while historically this sort of deployment has provided some much needed goodwill and community support for the military, it is undeniably not their primary purpose. And the added strain is really now showing. You know, even before the war in Ukraine, there were officers and government officials warning against what they perceived as an over-reliance on military support during disaster. But in October of 2022, a former national security advisor, Richard Fadden, warned a parliamentary committee that the current approach 
approach is unsustainable and that the military should return to their core training and operational responsibilities. So in my mind, this really renews that discussion around the lack of a true federal emergency response capability. And I think it might be the beginning of a much longer term conversation on how Canada could fill that gap if the military does indeed start to move away from disaster domestic response. So those were my top three picks for national news. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot more, but let's move on to hear what happened in the provinces and territories this year. Uh, and what better place to start than the center of the universe in Ontario? So to do that, we have Epic correspondent Simon Wells to let us know what happened, what changed, and a little bit of what to look forward to in 2023. My name is Simon Wells. I'm the founder and principal of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Management, and I'm very grateful to be here with you again. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, you're located in Ontario. I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a overview of some of the most impactful incidents this year. Absolutely, yeah. In January 2022, there was a major winter storm that covered a lot of southern Ontario and disrupted uh, most of the infrastructure and comings and goings of daily life in uh, uh, in southern Ontario. So that was a, a you know, a really significant event with really significant impacts and a snowfall in some areas that reached or exceeded uh, 60 centimeters. So absolutely huge amount of snow. The other one that I think is probably on top of mind for a lot of people was a Dereco, which is a, a fast moving major windstorm that occurred in May 2022. And that was a billion dollar storm that tragically claimed 12 lives. Uh, and the storm moved so quickly, it uh, moved from Sarnia to Quebec City in in nine hours and caused a, a massive amount of damage uh, in its wake. I hadn't heard of a Draco before. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what it is. I wasn't familiar with it until I, I heard about it as well. And that's why I highlight that one, because I think that that's a really important uh, example of having a, a robust risk assessment and then plans based on a risk assessment. Because uh, until we actually dive into the hazard environment and understand all of the possibilities. We're leaving ourselves exposed and vulnerable to threats like that. But essentially, it's a massive wall of of storm or front that moves in a straight line with really really intense winds. And without getting into meteorology, uh, that's probably the simplest way to explain it. What was the cause of death for those twelve people? As I understand it, most of them were killed by fallen trees. Uh, or, or debris from the storm, uh, because the storm reached speeds of almost 200 kilometers an hour at, at certain points. Uh, so you can imagine the amount of debris being thrown about uh, and the damage being caused uh, after that and the like structural instability in, uh, in the community that it hit. What about what changed this year? I think the most important changes that we've experienced in, in Ontario, where I live, are first that emergency management in Ontario has significantly expanded its uh, its size and reorganized itself, which is fantastic, and I applaud that. And uh, uh, the second is that the 2021 cabinet shuffle uh, in late 2021 resulted in this year, there being two federal ministries with mandates that that touch emergency management. The first is emergency preparedness, and the second is public safety. And while it might seem like only the Minister of uh, Emergency Preparedness is involved in emergency management, the Minister for Public Safety was also in receipt of a request for federal assistance in the Convoy of Freedom uh, protest movement in, in Ottawa. And so you can see that there is more federal attention on uh, emergency management, which is great. Um, 
but you can see that there's more uh, representation in cabinet as well. And I think that's a significant and positive step. Now, Canada has a, a long history of not quite being able to figure out where emergency management fits federally. So what does this most recent change mean? Or do you think it will have any impacts? I think it's very significant that Public Safety Canada now has two ministers that its portfolio agencies respond to because it recognizes that public safety and emergency management are distinct fields, and that's good. Uh, crime prevention and reduction deserves just as much attention as disaster risk reduction and emergency management, but that also means the opposite is true, that risk reduction and emergency management need an equal amount of attention. What about 2023? Care to make any predictions? I'm not sure about specifics, but I think that the field of emergency management and emergency preparedness is going to really explode, hypothetically speaking, in a uh, uh, as a matter of speaking, in the in the private sector. And we're seeing the impacts of COVID nineteen still on supply chains when you go and try and buy furniture. I was in the market for some furniture recently, and I got to wait months to get these materials. Um, Canadians being stranded abroad and. Um, vacation destinations because there isn't enough capacity to get them back uh, and there aren't enough flight crews to handle uh, regularly scheduled flights in what was supposed to be a return to normalcy. And so I'm thinking and hoping uh, that the private sector will recognize that emergency management is not synonymous with business continuity. And I say that with all due respect to our business continuity counterparts, it's not synonymous at all. Uh, and that emergency preparedness and having a plan for recovery and recovery transition is very important. And I think we're starting to see that being reflected in uh, certainly management and strategy consulting firms, which are really starting to push white papers and uh, service packages on crisis and resilience. And so it might look a little bit different. It might be called crisis management. It might be called resilience. But that's really what we're getting at is responding to and quickly recovering from disasters and emergencies. Well, there you have it. It's time to get into the private sector. Simon Wells, thank you so much for joining us and for everything you do. Uh, just before you go, I wonder if you want to give a quick plug for CGEM and tell us what's coming up. I do, yeah. I just wanted to say how grateful and proud I am uh, for my team at the Canadian Journal of Emergency Management. We finished our second volume uh, of two issues each, and we're going to start our third volume this year. And I also wanted to thank you folks at Epic Podcast, who are wonderful partners to us, as well as all of our other partners. So thank you very much. Well, those are the highlights from Ontario, and perhaps we'll follow that same path as the Direco and talk about Quebec next. Uh, the May Direco really was one of the top news stories here as well, as the sixth largest insured loss event in Canadian history. And although both Ontario and Quebec have seen this phenomenon before, this was the first to hit major cities. Uh, this meant that an estimated 15.6 million people or 41% of Canada's population was impacted in some way as it passed through Ottawa and several cities into Quebec, uh, tearing up power lines and critical infrastructure as it went. Uh, and it was also the first time that Environment and Climate Change Canada used the national public alerting system to issue a severe thunderstorm alert, which hopefully provided some advance notice. Uh, in other news, about 80 families were evacuated near Quebec City in June due to landslide risk. And unlike other disasters, this risk doesn't really pass so much. So instead of a, a temporary evacuation, these families were expected to be out of their homes for months, at least, if not permanently. Uh, and this region of Saguenay is particularly familiar with landslides, as the St. Jean Vianney uh, landslide killed 31 community members in 1971 as well. 
But now let's head west to BC and who better to give us the 2022 summary there than our very own Jillian Wong. So Jillian, what happened this year in BC? So BC had a little bit of everything this year, but thankfully the hazards we faced weren't at the same level of catastrophe as 2021. Um, Of course, I say that and it's all relative, you know, people in BC faced some tough circumstances and the year overall was fairly unique. Um, So, you know, some highlights, the summer finally started in July for us in BC, but after a very cold and wet winter and spring, it was hot and dry all the way through October, which is super peculiar. And BC had the hottest August on record and barely any rain fell from July to October. Um, So very very odd. Uh, Victoria had the driest summer on record, and Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Phoenix received more rain for this, you know, the July to October time period than Victoria. So again, these like very historically hot and dry places had more rain than, than some parts of BC. Um, So, you know, this dry summer caused some BC communities to open cooling centers and some declared a state of local emergency due to drought conditions. And for some of those communities, the drought has actually continued through the winter due to fast freezing precipitation. So that was definitely a very odd impact and uh, something very strange to watch play out in in BC, a a very wet place in in some locations. Um, Another result of the dry conditions was also wildfires late into the year and air quality advisories for multiple days well into October. So this year, you know, I really thought about the farmers and our agriculture industry in BC because they faced one thing after the next and it must have just been compounding after the impacts of 2021's heat dome and atmospheric river flooding. So we had a very hot and dry summer that was very long. Um, And then BC just went through a pretty gnarly winter with high snow amounts for us, uh, freezing and then followed by rain. And so the provincial government closed highways and urged people to stay home. Um, Ultimately, lots of communities were extremely concerned about power outages and flooding again um, with, you know, flood watches and high high stream flow advisories for rivers and streams uh, being issued in many communities. I'll say that the public communication from governments seemed appropriately alarming this winter. So BC is seeing a shift in government communications about dangerous conditions. So that's kind of my number two highlight for BC is, um, you know, a parade of very interesting winter conditions for us, but also paired with uh, good government communications. And then um, kind of the third thing to mention is that this was the year of the storm surge. So starting at the beginning of the year, high coastal tides known as king tides and high winds made for some dramatic impacts along the coast of BC. And king tides are pretty typical occurrences, but paired with high winds or rain, it creates flooding conditions and can damage infrastructure. So we saw this as just as an example, we saw this uh, on the seawall in Vancouver and it was damaged pretty badly in January of this year. And then at the end of the year, the storm surge came back and kind of bookended the year with multiple communities in BC warning the public about the dangers and possible flood impacts of storm surge. Those are my top three disaster moments for BC this year. 
And I know a lot of people were trapped overseas because of that most recent round of flooding, as well as some significant supply chain disruptions. So that's what happened. What about what changed in BC this year? The big, big thing to note for BC is that early in December uh, of this year, uh, BC announced the creation of a new ministry. Um, It is called the Ministry of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness. So you know, the the mandate for this new ministry would be to work on response, to complete current work, to modernize provincial emergency management legislation, uh, lead a provincial hazard risk vulnerability assessment, and uh, in collaboration with the existing Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy, advance BC's commitment to the Sendai framework and the development of a provincial disaster and climate risk reduction plan. Um, It would also position First Nations as leaders and partners in emergency management from planning to implementation. And then finally, the mandate for this ministry is to coordinate resilience efforts and preparedness, adaptation and recovery. So this move is actually moving emergency management from underneath the Ministry of Public, uh, Ministry for Public Safety, uh, and will be a standalone ministry, essentially. I think, I believe this is a unique thing for Canada, at least in this moment in time. I'm, I can't be too sure. I'm not up on my history, but it does make sense given that BC continues to experience record-breaking natural hazards. Um, there was a you know, study done by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that said that climate-related disasters in BC in 2021 cost the economy between to $17 billion, which is, you know, three to 5% of our provincial GDP. So that that's, you know, that's a huge impact to our province. And um, again, you know, as we kind of continue to see impacts in strange weather in 2022, hopefully this ministry will be able to make some really interesting uh, and innovative moves for, for BC. Well, thanks so much for that update. I understand we might not be hearing as much from you over the the next year. So uh, thank you so much for everything you've done for the podcast and emergency management over the, the last year. Thanks so much and happy 2023. Okay, moving along to the Prairie Provinces, I might as well give the update for Alberta, as that's where I'm situated. And although we had our regular floods, fires, and freezes, the hazardous story that sticks out for me is the November 30th earthquake. Uh, This was a 5.6 magnitude quake with an epicenter near Peace River, and shaking felt as far away as Calgary. Uh, Although there weren't any injuries reported, this was the biggest earthquake in Alberta's history, and a naturally occurring one at that. Just one more reason that we need that Canadian earthquake early warning system in place soon. In terms of what has changed, Alberta has also uh, put a new EM-related ministry in place. The new Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Services, uh, Mike Ellis, is a former police officer and was appointed fairly recently, which is a change from emergency management being housed in the municipal affairs portfolio. I'm interested to understand more about this and why this change was made and, and what it will actually mean. And then finally, for all of the incident management nerds out there, the Alberta Emergency Management Agency has put out its new Alberta Incident Management System, or AIMS. On first read, it bears remarkable similarities to the U.S. National Incident Management System uh, and was explained to me as an approach to managing incident impacts that are quote-unquote outside the tape. So focusing more on emergency coordination centers, 
not emergency operations centers, by the way, instead of incident command post operations, which are well outlined in, in the ICS doctrine. I still have a lot to learn about this approach, but in a recent public engagement event, it seemed that smaller municipalities were a bit concerned that they wouldn't have the resources to support both an incident command post and an emergency coordination center, which I think is probably a good point, but also means it's time to start creating more regional partnerships in some cases, which is actually exactly exactly what is going on in Lethbridge County right now, where, where six communities are coming together to form a regional emergency management team. So let's move along to Saskatchewan, where it was a blustery year. Uh, in fact, Saskatchewan saw 25 tornadoes this year, which is the highest number in a decade. And luckily, there weren't too many impacts from the, the tornadoes, but the top disaster news here is unfortunately quite tragic. Uh, between September 4th and 7th, one of the deadliest massacres in Canadian history took place when two men involved in mass stabbings traveled across 13 locations on the James Smith Cree Nation and through Weldon. In the end, 12 people died and 18 more were injured. I can only imagine that this would have been an extremely difficult mass fatality and mass casualty incident to manage as it was so dispersed and, and drawn out, uh, as well as having a devastating impact on those communities. One point to mention from this incident was the RCMP's use of public alerting. Unlike the 2020 Nova Scotia attacks in which RCMP garnered a lot of scrutiny for not using public alerting effectively, uh, there were at least 12 emergency alerts issued between September 4th and 7th, and they cast a rather large net. In fact, I received the alert here in Alberta. So uh, although I think there are still things to work out with public alerting, it does seem like the RCMP may have learned their lesson, uh, which probably saved lives in this case. Moving on to Manitoba, the story of the year there was flooding yet again. But this year, uh, it has been described as everything, everywhere, all at once. So a combination of heavy snow and spring rains caused the Red River to flood in the south, the Fisher River to overflow and cause evacuation of the uh, Pijuas, uh, sorry, First Nations in the north, uh, flash flooding in the west impacting Porcupine Hills and Duck Mountain, and in the east, Winnipeg River was flowing at record volumes as well. So while perhaps not the largest flood in Manitoba's very soggy history, uh, Premier Heather Stephenson uh, stated that it had affected many more Manitobans at the same time than in the past. In other flooding news, looking north to the territories, Hay River in Northwest Territories experienced its worst flooding in 60 years in May of this year, with damages expected to exceed $174 million. Residents had to evacuate, roads were washed away, and critical infrastructures such as the water treatment plant and landfill were impacted as well. If you'd like to hear a bit more about this, you can check out our episode on logistical nightmares as our very own Josh Bazanson served as logistics section chief during part of this incident anyways. And then last but definitely not least, let's move to the maritime provinces where the usual January blizzards and weather bombs, though impactful, were definitely replaced as this top story by Hurricane Fiona. If you didn't follow the news on this one, it, it was big. Uh, in fact, it is now being listed as one of the top 10 costliest disasters in Canadian history. On September 24th, Fiona made landfall in eastern Nova Scotia, setting records for the deepest barometric pressure for a storm ever recorded over land in Canada. It moved across Cape Breton and Newfoundland and ended up in Labrador. Uh, it brought devastating winds and rain with 150 millimeters of rain in one day in places, triggering flash floods, as well as significant 
storm surges, almost two meters high in parts of PEI, uh, and waves as high as 30 meters. So when all was said and done, three people had died, unfortunately. Uh, 600,000 homes were without power for as long as two weeks, and five provinces were faced with months of debris removal and recovery, uh, even with the assistance of uh, nearly 1,000 military personnel who were deployed for assistance. The good news here is that there was significant warning time and a very experienced population who did some great preparedness activities. Uh, there were several inspirational stories, but perhaps the most notable was the re-emergence of the storm chips. Hopefully you heard about this on the news, but people stocked up on their favorite type of chip to munch during the storm. And in fact, the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador Liquor Corporation has even put out a beer and wine storm chip pairing guide in the past, which I imagine came in handy as families hunkered down for the blustery weather. And I think Storm Chips is probably our epic favorite disaster moment of the year. So with that, I think we'll end our disaster highlight reel. You know, so much happened in 2022, and we wouldn't be able to get through this without support from listeners like you, uh, but also from our partners. So a huge shout out to CGEMS, CCRC, CRHNet, IAM, Ontario Demcon, and the Alberta Podcast Network for seeing us through yet another record-breaking disaster of a year. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.